Laurel Porter joined KGW in 2000 after a dynamic career in broadcasting. She anchors KGW News on weeknights and co-anchors KGW News at 11. She also hosts KGW's current affairs current affairs show, Straight Talk, which airs Friday nights and in that role, won the 2015 Northwest Regional Emmy for Best Host Moderator. David Molko joined KGW in January 2022 as an evening news anchor. A five-time Emmy award-winning journalist and television news anchor and correspondent, he has over 15 years of experience in international, national, and local storytelling. Laurel and David, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Caitlin. And we would like to welcome all of you watching to the 2022 primary debate between the leading Democratic candidates in the race for Oregon governor. Yeah, we are proud to be partnering with the City Club of Portland. And while Laurel and I together will have the final say here on questions we pose, the City Club has established the entry threshold for the candidates to join the debate, as well as guidelines for the overall format of the next 90 minutes here. So let's introduce you to the candidates joining us virtually. Tobias Reed was elected Oregon's 29th state treasurer in 2016. Before that, he worked in the U.S. Treasury and in shoe development at Nike as a liaison between designers, engineers, and manufacturing units. He was elected to the Oregon House in 2006, where he served for a decade representing Beaverton and parts of Southwest Portland. He lives in Beaverton and is now in his second term as state treasurer. And Tina Kotek is Oregon's former House Speaker of nearly 10 years and was the longest tenured speaker in state history. She was first elected to the House in 2006 as well, after working for nonprofits that included the Oregon Food Bank. In 2013, her colleagues elected her the country's first openly lesbian House Speaker. She resigned from that role earlier this year to focus on her campaign for governor, and she lives in North Portland. Okay, let's talk about some ground rules now. We'll begin with opening statements, followed by an open question and answer section where David and I will ask you questions on everything from homelessness to education to law and order. The candidate will have 90 seconds to answer that initial question. Following that, the other candidate will have 90 seconds to respond. The candidates will also, and this is fun, later on we'll have the opportunity to ask each other a question. Those responses should be kept to 60 seconds. And if David and I ask you a follow-up question, keep those responses to 60 seconds as well. The City Club does have a timekeeper and the candidates can see that time. That timekeeper may also mute candidates if they go much beyond their allotted time. All right, candidates, both of you have agreed to observe those limits and to be respectful of one another's time. The City Club has also designated what they are calling a 30 second free speech pass you may use to further make a point at any stage of the Q&A here. Candidates, you each have two of those, two free speech passes each. Following that, we're gonna have a quick lightning round to take a breath and then a question from each of you to each other as Laurel mentioned. And finally, we're gonna wrap up with some questions we have selected from those submitted by City Club members followed by your closing statements. A lot to get through here. And a quick note before we get started, former House Speaker Kotek and Treasurer Reed, you've both agreed to be addressed by your first names as we progress through the debate. So we had an opening coin toss earlier, just a few minutes ago, and Treasurer Reed will go first with the opening statement, followed by former House Speaker Tina Kotek, and Tina Kotek will get the first question after that. So Treasurer Reed, you have two minutes now for your opening statement. You may begin. Thanks, Laurel. Thanks, David, and thanks to City Club for having us uh, today. 
This is a big question and a big decision in front of uh, Oregonians, and I think it's going to have a lot to do with what sort of future we're going to have together. We have a choice. We can choose more of the same, the status quo, or we can choose a change in direction. And I think the evidence for the change we need is all around us. We see too many of our fellow Oregonians on the street living in unsafe and unhealthy conditions that are not fair to them and certainly not fair to people who want to use parks and public spaces and to, and to small business owners. We're seeing a lot of our fellow Oregonians being injured or killed as a result of gun violence. And every family I know is really concerned about the experience their kids are having in public education. We are, I think, at risk of losing confidence and engagement in our society. And that bodes poorly for, for our future. I think a lot of this stems from the disconnect between the good intentions we have in Oregon and the lack of follow through. We need a governor who is willing to say what most of us already know, what we're doing today isn't working. We need a governor who is willing to articulate a vision for the future, the long run future, and the ability to get it done. It's not just enough to pass bills or appropriate money. We need a governor who is willing to hold people accountable and to deliver results that Oregonians need and deserve. That's what I wanna to bring to the race. As treasurer, I've learned how to do this. I think when we reconnect, when we build our confidence together, we'll be able to invest in the brighter future that we want for ourselves and for our kids. That's why I'm asking for your vote. Thank you. Thank you, Treasurer Reed, former House Speaker Tina Kotek. Uh, it's your turn now for opening statements. You have two minutes. You may begin. Well, first of all, I want to thank the Portland City Club for organizing today's, today's debate. The civic engagement is so important. And thank you, KGW, for being a media partner so, so more people can uh, follow this discussion. My name is Tina Kotek. I'm really proud to have served as your House Speaker for nine years, longer than anyone else in Oregon's history. Many of you know me as a state representative and as your speaker, but at my core, I'm an advocate and I'm a problem solver. I started my career at Oregon Food Bank more than 20 years ago, traveling around the state, listening to folks who needed an emergency food box. One thing was very clear from the start. It was never just about food. It was about low wages, medical debt, high rents, and so much more. I have never forgotten those stories. That's why I do this work. It's why I got into public service in the first place, to fight for Oregonians. And that's why as speaker, I led the way to raise the minimum wage, expand access to health insurance for all Oregonians, fought and won to finally invest in our schools by making a record $1 billion more per year available to our public schools with the Student Success Act. And I passed the nation's strongest abortion access law so that reproductive rights are protected here in Oregon no matter what happens at the Supreme Court. Listen, it's easy to talk about our problems, it's tough to actually solve them. And that's what I do. I get things across the finish line. I fix problems. I look under the hood and I sweat the details. That's what you've seen from me as your speaker. And that's what you'll get from me as your governor. It's never been more important to have someone in the governor's office who has demonstrated the values of putting people first and the ability to deliver on those priorities. That's why I'm running for governor. And that's why I hope that I will earn your vote. Thank you. And thank you for that, both candidates. Our first question is going to go to former speaker, Tina Kotek. Now, there seem to be a lot of similarities between you and your opponent when it comes to priorities and values. Uh, Tina, what do you think is the biggest difference between you and Tobias that should matter to voters? Well, thank you for the question. As I mentioned in my opening statement, it's about being able to get things done. Um, Tobias and I came into the legislature together and yet I have the track record of nine years as a speaker. As 
moving very significant legislation. And I want to be clear, those things don't happen easily. They don't happen overnight. They don't happen on the first try. We were three to four years before we got the Student Success Act passed in the legislature to bring a billion dollars more per year to our schools. Well, I think the difference is, is that I know how to bring folks together. I have demonstrated publicly of how to take on very tough topics, make sure everyone gets heard, identify a solution, and put it into, into legislation. But I would, would say at this point, that's not enough. I'm running to governor because you have to follow through on those things. The things that the legislature has passed are still waiting to be done in some ways. I wanna make sure, for example, that the paid family medical leave insurance program that is one of the strongest in the country that I helped negotiate actually gets implemented at the employment department. That's why I'm running for governor to make sure that the things I've been able to do in the legislature actually happen to improve the lives of Oregonians. All right, Treasurer Reed, now you get to respond to that. And also, what do you think is the biggest difference between you and Tina Kotek? I think the biggest difference is between legislative service and executive service. It is really important to know how to pass bills and to approve budgets. In fact, uh, the speaker is the, the most powerful uh, lawmaker in, in the state in many ways, and the former speaker was there for a decade. I'm glad to hear this, this concern about uh, urgency and execution, uh, but I can't help observe that, that that opportunity existed for a long time. For me, it has been a, a really important experience to, to learn what happens after bills are passed and what uh, when, when, when budgets are, are approved. Uh, we've, we've taken um, concepts to execution. Instead of having a, a long delay about paid family leave, um, we executed and implemented the nation's first opt-out retirement savings program. Uh, five years later, we have 115,000 people with funded IRA accounts. They've saved $150 million. That number goes up regularly. And it's a program that has seen its public support increase. So I think what Oregonians are looking for is someone who can deliver those results, uh, who can go beyond uh, the ideas, beyond the passage of legislation, the approval of budgets, uh, and deliver the results that Oregonians need and want. All right, Tobias, thank you. And thank you both for keeping your remarks to time as we move through here. Next question. Former State Representative Jules Bailey, a Democrat, in an interview recently called Oregon a, quote, high-tax state with low services, end quote. Stuff is not working, he said, using a different four-letter word that is not for a family-friendly audience here. In your view, what has been the biggest failure in the Kate Brown administration? Hindsight being 2020, what would you have done differently? And what would you do as governor to fix things? Tobias, you'll go first here. The first thing I do is ask for the resignations of every agency director, not because there's necessarily anything wrong with individuals, but to prompt the conversation about where I would want to head and to make sure that we have a, a consistent alignment there. This is not to say I want to be surrounded by yes people. I definitely want to be surrounded by a variety of opinions, but to have a fundamental understanding uh, of our orientation. We need to be motivated by the fact that vulnerable Oregonians are not getting the help they need, whether it's the, uh, the breakdown of our unemployment benefits system, our, our inability to get rental assistance that people need, or that delayed paid family leave program. We need a governor who is willing to make sure that uh, state agencies have the resources they need to back them uh, when they are doing that work and to follow through. Uh, I think the former representative um, is, is correct. Um, we are not following through on those details and matching our good intentions with our execution uh, is the way that, uh, that we have to make progress in that regard. 
Tina, same question in your response there. Yeah, well, I've uh, been talking to a lot of Oregonians in this campaign and they're frustrated and I'm frustrated too. So why I'm running for governor. I've worked to make sure that we've had budgets and legislation that help people. And in the pandemic, it was absolutely unacceptable that we couldn't get unemployment benefits out the door to folks when people were losing their jobs during the beginning of the pandemic. My office at the legislature helped hundreds of people to kind of navigate a system that had literally broken down. And I don't think it's about issuing a press release and complaining. I did what I could as a legislator to try to fix from behind the scenes to make sure people could get their benefits. And there are a lot more people who were helped um, because of the work that I did in my office with my team. My frustration with well, how things are going right now, it is about management. I successfully managed the legislative branch for nine years, improving our policies, our procedures, our access to the legislative process. I know what it means to manage a branch. What we have to make sure is we, as leaders and as the next governor, make sure that our agency directors are following through on achieving what we've asked them to do and supporting our line staff to take risks try new things and have their back when they are trying to innovate and do better customer service for Oregonians. That's what I want to do as your next governor. And Tina, just a brief follow-up here, maybe 15 or 20 seconds. Tobias mentioned he's asking for the re resignations of certain agency directors. Would you do the same as governor? You know, I've heard that, that idea, and I thought about that early on, but then I talked to an HR professional and said, look, we want to make sure that it's clear that the folks who are doing the day-to-day -day job have some stability. I think it's better to sit down with every agency director and say, prove to me you should still have this job. And if we're not in alignment, they won't have that job. But that is how you approach it. I don't think just asking everyone to resign and causing disruption is the right way to go. Tobias, do you want to have a quick response there, maybe 10 seconds? Well, I, I think we may come back to that in the future, but I think there is a fundamental question if things aren't working and the representative, the former commissioner uh, is, is right. Uh, I think we need to be open to some more drastic changes. All right, thank you both. Let's move on to our next question here. Oregonians by and large are feeling pessimistic that we are essentially on the wrong track here. A December DHM survey of voters in the Tri-County area found 88% of those surveyed said quality of life is getting worse, 88%. That's up from 49% in 2017. Now you were both first elected to the state legislature in 2006, 15 years ago. Do you disagree with the vast majority of voters that we are on the wrong track and why or why not? Tina, you'll go first here. Well, I agree that people are angry and frustrated and I share that frustration. Look, we have been through some very difficult years with the, with the pandemic and you know it's not completely over. It's understandable people are hurting, they're frustrated, their lives have been upended and they're looking for someone to say, where do we go next? So I'm not surprised by those numbers, but I'm running for governor because I am hopeful and I found this when I was talking to Oregonians in other parts of the state outside the metro area, but also in the metro area. People want to solve problems. They love Oregon. They want Oregon to be successful. So I think we take that pessimism and, and work with folks to solve problems together so we can have the state we wanna have. I'm not surprised by the frustration, but I wanna jump in with folks and say, let's fix it because we all love the state and we want it to work. Thank you, Tina. Tobias, your response, same question. I agree with the, the sentiment that's expressed in that poll. Uh, I don't think we have been on, on the right track for a while. And for me, that plays out in lots of different directions. 
one of the most significant, I think, is is something that we many of us feel in our own direct lives. Uh, my wife and I are, are public school parents in the in the Beaverton area, and I don't know any family who feels good about the experience that's uh, been part of, of public school uh, through the pandemic. It has exposed a lot of vulnerabilities. And we have to be really clear um, the central role that, that schools play uh, in our state. When a school closes, uh, it's, a, it's a kid that suffers. Their, their, their learning falls behind, their mental health might suffer. Um, we're often putting families into the difficult position of having to choose between uh, caring for their child or keeping their paycheck. And that, of course, is, is a, a burden that falls heavily, uh, most heavily on working families, uh, students of color, and women. And it has a central piece of the economy as well. So I think the key to getting back on the right track is executing, is matching our, our promises with follow through and making sure um, that people regain their confidence. That's going to unlock a lot more capacity for us. And I think we have uh, a lot of work to do. Thank you, candidates. Thank you, Tobias and Tina, for that. We're going to move on to our next question, and we begin with, with another poll. Polls in the Portland metro area show the issue of homelessness is the number one concern throughout the metro area, and you can't go anywhere without people talking about it. Everybody's talking about it. What's been wrong with the way the city of Portland has handled the homeless crisis, and how would your approach be different in the way the city and the state interact to try to get people off the streets. And we'll begin with Tobias on this one. I think we have to bring urgency and seriousness. It is just not okay for us um, to, to continue to, to be complacent about this. There are people on the streets in unsafe, unhealthy conditions that are not fair to them. Uh, it's not fair to people who wanna be safe in their neighborhoods and to, to businesses. And the, the challenging thing, the most frustrating thing for me is that money is available and we're not following through, we're not executing. So I think uh, it's a matter of that urgency, making sure that uh, transitional and emergency housing is uh, available with the wraparound services that people need. And in the long run, we're getting a lot more efficient and effective and, um, and cost effective in building permanent housing. Um, that's a need, obviously. And we're also losing the confidence of voters who have been supportive of funding mechanisms, but they're getting impatient. They're not seeing the, uh, the, the units that they were promised. And so our problem is going to get worse if we don't get that on, on top, on, we don't get on top of that. Uh, in the end, we have to recognize that what we are doing right now isn't working and calling together uh, governments at all levels. Uh, we shouldn't care about those jurisdictional squabbles. We've got to stop making excuses and start making progress. And a couple of follow-ups on, on this one for you, Tobias. Would you support a more assertive approach to tent camping and require people to move off the streets and into shelters? Got a quick, quick answer there. We have to make sure that there are those uh, available transitional uh, shelters and, and opportunities. But once we're there, yes, I think it is, it is okay to say you have responsibilities to the other parts of, of community as well. And if you're governor, would you support the state helping to pay for those shelters? I think we have resources at the state level that we have to look at effective investments in. That's going to make it so much more possible uh, in the rest of the state. And it's not just the Portland problem, by the way, either. Uh, but yes, I think we have to look at all options. And now, uh, Tina Kotek, just once again, what is wrong with the way the Portland has handled the homeless crisis? And how would your approach be different in the city and state interacting about this problem? Yep, this is the number one issue that I hear from Oregonians in all parts of the states that I've, that I've been traveling to. Uh, and it looks different in different communities, and it is at a humanitarian crisis level in the Portland area. 
and it's not okay. It is not moral for people to be living in tents in their RVs. And I live in Portland. I see it every day. We got to change it. At the state level, as speaker, I worked really hard to make sure we could do what we could. For example, Project Turnkey, where we converted, I led the way to convert motels across our state to get into transitional housing. We increased the shelter capacity in this state by 20% in only about seven months, 19 new shelters in 13 counties. That's the type of innovative work we need to see more of from the state. And the question about the state investing, I have led the way to make sure the state is providing more money to our local community. So what's the problem? Implementation. The adults in the so room you talk to each other. And what I would say is, uh, I'm not happy with Mayor Wheeler's performance. I've worked specifically to say, here's money for an RV park. Where is it yet? When I said, you need $2 million to clean up graffiti and trash on ODOT's property, it was there. I don't believe the city is focused in a way that they should. It is about being able to operationalize it. And as governor, we're going to have some different conversations about how to make that happen. So you would be more involved as governor. Would you take a more assertive approach into tent camping? A lot of people uh, want to see that uh, happen to move people into shelters. Would you be more assertive in moving tent camping off the streets? I think we have to be more assertive in the overall approach. But when it comes to having folks move into shelters, we need more homeless navigators on the street. It's in my plan to help people have that connection and trusting relationship to get people into shelter so they can move into permanency. That will take time, but it will also take more people on the streets doing that work. Um, and uh, right now, it's you can't move people unless there are more shelter and more transitional options. We have to create those. And I am so frustrated with the speed at which the city is doing this work, and we can do it differently. And as governor, I am the only one in this race who has worked on housing, who understands the nuances of not only getting people in the shelter, getting them into permanency, building more affordable housing. And my plan will say we can end homelessness for our most vulnerable Oregonians in the next two years if we do it better. Resources aren't the only issue here. This is about people working together better. Tobias, you want to briefly respond to a uh, comment there about sort of as an outsider that you haven't worked sort of specifically on housing there, maybe 10 or 15 seconds. Well, I guess I would say uh, we have worked on housing. We play an important role in making sure that we uh, issue state bonds. Uh, and and if, if the former speaker wants to take uh, all the credit for, for working on housing, I think it's reasonable to ask how it's going. All right, let's Can move I, on to another topic that we are I, talking about here. I think so. Yeah, yeah, uh, I guess, absolutely. So 30 seconds, Speaker Kote, go ahead. I think since I just had a meeting with the president yesterday, I would just say a little bit malarkey to that about what you have been doing. You haven't been in the arena working on this issue, Tobias. You just simply haven't. And if you, the people who are endorsing me and supporting me, I race are the folks who have done housing, housing development, shelter work. And with all due respect, you haven't been doing the work at all. Tobias? How's, how's it going? I think he, he's asking how how is the homeless crisis going? Yes, how is housing people going? I think going? the question was well, how's that's it going? Why to you, the but... governor, Tobias, it is not working, because as governor, the only way to change that is be to charge of the agencies and have the the authority to get local government leaders to work differently together, and you know that.
So here's the interesting thing about that. You were the most powerful governor or powerful legislator uh, in Oregon. You could summon those directors to your office at a moment's notice. Every budget uh, is a reflection of your decisions. Who has gavels in the House? Who, what the agendas are in those committees are a reflection of your direction. So to now say that you could only do, that you were a lowly legislator without the effective ability to, to deal with that, I don't. I, I, don't I actually didn't say that, Tobias. What I said was, I frankly, that's a simplistic answer there. I created housing committees. I created significant investments over the top of everyone. The Senate president is notorious for saying every time she came to my office, she wanted more money for housing and homelessness. And I'm running for governor because with those investments and with the new laws on the books, we should be doing better. And that is an indictment of the state's inability to work with local leaders to make sure those investments are actually producing outcomes. And I'm tired of it. That's why I'm running for governor. And I'm going to jump in here and just point out, too, that you are both part of the party that has been in power in this state for uh, a long time, decades here, in fact. So we're going to move on, though, to another topic that's top of mind with a lot of voters and people in general, and that is law and order. So the question is, Portland hit a grim record in 2021 with 90 homicides, the most in the city's history. This year, we are on track to pass that. 29 homicides so far. We're only at the end of April and hundreds of shootings. Now, they include everyone from a homeless man attacked downtown to a teenager, a high school student who was gunned down last weekend in southeast Portland and what police believe a drive by. The question here, what specific steps will you take as governor to address gun violence and make our streets safer? And do you feel safe walking through, for example, downtown Portland? Tina, you'll go first here. Well, thank you for the question. I know a lot of Portlanders don't feel safe. I've lived in some pretty large cities and uh, I, in terms of my personal safety, I think we all have to be cautious. There, in every city in the country right now, as we come out of this pandemic recession, there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of increase in violence. And frankly, there are too many guns on the street. When I was speaker, I did what I could to make sure we were keeping guns out of the hands of folks who shouldn't have them, increasing our background checks, making sure that individuals who were domestic abusers couldn't have access to guns, passing a safe storage law that said, if you own a gun, store it safely so it can't get stolen or, or have an accidental death. Those are good, but it's not enough. We need to ban and figure out how to get ghost guns off the streets. We have to make sure that when violence in the community happens, that there's intervention and prevention to stop the cycle of violence. We need to make sure that our law enforcement can be there when they're needed but also make sure that we have other professionals like Portland Street Response that can be there when someone's in a mental health crisis. We need a broader, deeper approach to community policing, and we have to keep folks from committing violent acts in the first place. That means supporting them well in their schools, making sure they have what they need. A lot of folks are hurting right now, and we have work to do to make sure we, as a community, can reduce this violence. Thank you, Tina. Tobias, same question. We need to ban ghost guns. We need to ban high capacity magazines as uh, methods of reducing the, uh, the risk of, uh, of mass shootings. We need a statewide gun buyback program to help safely remove uh, guns from, uh, from circulation. And we need more resources to law enforcement. That's gonna, I think, look different in different communities. It's certainly gonna uh, include uh, accountability measures and alternative approaches along with those violence uh, interruption programs. But ultimately, uh, we need to make sure that law enforcement has the resources they need uh, to respond, particularly to, to gun crime and to illegal gun dealers. 
And, and you mentioned resources. I wanted to follow up here, uh, Tobias. The mayor said, Mayor Wheeler said this week, the city needs more help with more resources from the feds and the state. Would you dedicate funding in your first budget as governor to reduce gun violence, specifically in Portland? I would absolutely be interested in, in how to do that in partnership with, with local governments. Uh, I think there, there is all the reason in the world to suspect that uh, we're gonna be better off when those, those resources are in place. And Tina, would you dedicate funding in your first budget as governor to reduce gun violence in Portland? I know we were hearing from President Biden that more resources are coming from the federal government, which has been the traditional funder of additional law enforcement outside local dollars. But yes, um, at the state level, and I've done this, right? My last bill before I left the legislature was about accessing federal Medicaid dollars to have more community violence intervention and prevention in hospital settings when there are community violent incidents. Um, Yes, I think we can do that. That's why I also supported for the first time last year, the state funding models like Portland Street Response, grants available for local communities to have that level of crisis response for folks in a mental health crisis. So yes, I think there's a role of the state with the federal government to make sure communities have what they need to keep people safe. And let me just briefly ask you about this in terms of law enforcement and resources. Nearly two years after the death of George Floyd and all that followed after, what does defund the police mean to you today? Tina, let's go ahead with you first and maybe keep it to 45 seconds or so. I think we need law enforcement that people in the community feel safe calling and, and feel that they're responsible and accountable and making sure people don't interact with police in the first place. And that means making sure all communities have what they need to be successful. Right now, I think we have a lot of people hurting, so we need adequate police response better community policing, and frankly, making sure folks have what they need to be successful so they don't get involved in with the police. Tobias, same question to you. What does defund the police mean to you today? Well, I think we need to learn the lessons of people who were really frustrated and, and worried about their interactions with law enforcement, and we need to take lessons from that uh, around making sure that, that police are effective and accountable. Um, someone I know uh, well says, I, I don't want less police, I want better police, and I think that's a, a good summary for me. And you're talking about racial justice reform, Tobias. What additional steps would you support? The legislature took some steps last session and this session as far as racial justice reform. What more do you want to see? I want to see body cameras on, on officers in Oregon. I think that's a first step to make sure that we have transparency and the ability to hold law enforcement accountable. And Tina, what additional steps would you take as governor when it comes to racial justice reform? Well, first of all, follow through on the significant historic legislation that was passed in 2020 and 2021 around increased accountability, transparency when people have bad conduct records, making sure training is better at the Department of Police Safety and Standards and Training. There are things we can do, and as governor, making sure that we follow through on those things. I think that the next big thing is to make sure our public defense system is working. So when people should have legal access to representation, and right now our public defense system needs a lot of work. I want to move to the pandemic now. Uh, Oregon took an aggressive approach to mask mandates and other restrictions during the height of the pandemic. It helped Oregon have one of the lowest death rates from COVID in the country, but it also divided the state. Would you have done things any differently? And moving forward, do you see a scenario in which strict restrictions could come back? We'll begin with Tina Kotek on this. 
Well, I will say, I think the divide was there before the pandemic, um, or at least the perceived divide from folks who live in all parts of the state. We were successful as a state early in the pandemic in keeping people alive. Some tough choices were made about asking people to stay home, wear masks, be careful. And because of that, we did so much better than other states to keep people alive. There are a lot of people walking around today because we did those things. And I think it's been more complicated as the pandemic has progressed. As governor, I think one of the key things to do to, to reduce any kind of confusion or divide is to be as clear as possible about expectations and what the science is saying about what we should do. Um, I think um, when we ask local county public officials to do these things, they were reflecting the needs of their own communities. At the end of the day, I wanna make sure that we can keep everybody safe and we're all gonna to have to take personal responsibility to do what we can, get vaccinated. If you're in a situation where you think you have to wear a mask, wear a mask, we all have to be responsible for each other as well as ourselves. Is there a point, Tina, where you would ever reinstate a mask mandate? As governor, I'm gonna follow the science. I wanna know what the experts say. I hope we don't have another search where we have to go back to any kind of enhanced public health protocols. And as governor, one of your main priorities is to keep people safe and alive. I hope we don't have to go there, but I will follow the science to make sure we do what we can to keep people safe and healthy. So if the science points that way, you would reinstate a mask mandate? I think if requirement of having to wear masks, for example, in on airplanes, if it shows that we're seeing a surge around the country, I personally would support having us back wearing masks in an airplane. So I think it's- What a about system. in Oregon, Oregon though, in general, the mask mandate that we saw before? Well, I think it depends on what the science is saying. And if it looks like the numbers are increasing and our hospital systems are failing, then yes, we need to have, be back to wearing masks until that, that crisis passes. And Tobias, talking about the pandemic, would you have done anything differently? And do you see a scenario in which strict restrictions could come back? I think the Gov Governor Brown deserves a lot of credit for making some tough decisions early on and putting us in a better position, as you said. But I definitely uh, felt some frustration around the um, inconsistency of communication. And as a, a parent of, of public school students, uh, I was extraordinarily frustrated when we saw bars and restaurants open before we saw schools open. So I think being really clear about our, our priorities and consistent in our communications will, will help us uh, when we need to, to make those sacrifices. I think it would be irresponsible to say that there is no scenario in which masks or other uh, mandates might be necessary, but it's certainly not my, my preference. Thank you, candidates. All right, candidates, let's uh, stay sort of with the same topic in, in, in the health arena here, and let's talk about addiction in Oregon. This is an issue that impacts people from all walks of life, families, teenagers, seniors. Now, federal data shows we are the worst in the nation per capita when it comes to illegal substance abuse, and second worst when you include legal substances like alcohol. Now, Oregon also ranks last per capita for access to treatment despite having had a strategic plan ready to be implemented for over two years. What is more, the legislature had to pass a bill in the short session, essentially to force government agencies in this area to cooperate with each other, just to meet, to begin to implement that plan. Experts who work in the area say the system is broken. They give it a grade of F. How would things be different under your leadership? Tobias, we'll begin with you. Well, we start with that urgency again and make sure that we're not sending money to agencies that aren't prepared to deploy it. 
Um, it is, I know the, the former speaker and I share the frustration here about what's happening with the Oregon Health Authority and the, the dollars that are stuck there and not out uh, being deployed to, to help people who are dealing with substance use disorder. Um, that can't happen. People are at risk. People are, um, are, are, are desperate for those opportunities and we're not delivering for people. Um, we have to, we should not be, be reliant on the legislature to force people to, uh, to, 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 collaborate. And, and all of these issues are connected, of course. Uh, people who are dealing with substance use disorder are more likely to be experiencing homelessness as well. And so uh, all of these things are, are connected and they have to be treated with urgency. Tina, your response here? Yep. Uh, this is a top priority for me. My wife is a social worker. We talk a lot about how people can't get the help they need when people are ill and ready to get help, whether it's a mental health issue or to get sober, those services need to be available. Timing is important in these situations. And my wife and I have talked about the system that is under immense pressure to produce, and it is not designed in a way to be effective and efficient. First of all, we have a workforce we don't pay well. We don't you know, give them adequate caseloads where they can actually do quality work. The legislature last year, at my leadership, made sure we put another half a billion dollars into this system for this biennium. And most of that money hasn't touched a provider yet. When we look at Measure 110 and the redirection of marijuana revenue that voters approved, same situation. Look, here's, I wanna go into a room and say, I know it's hard. I know it's complex. You might have a staffing issue. But at the end of the day, we need to move the money and get it to the providers because people are literally dying because they cannot get access to the services that they need. That is not what we want to see in Oregon. And I'm going to get into the nitty gritty with a bunch of providers as soon as I have that chance. And let me just briefly follow up here, Tina, for, with first with you. Will you implement that strategic plan that has been in place since 2020 in your first year or two in office as governor? Honestly, I think it doesn't have enough level of detail to say it's ready to be implemented. I want to stick with what we know we need right now. $110 need to go out to providers who provide recovery services. We need additional residential capacity. We need to pay our workforce more through increased rates, particularly who are low income Oregonians on Medicaid. We can do very specific things right away and then come back and see if, if we're on track with that plan. And to buy the same question, would you would you implement that strategic plan during that for your first year in office as governor? I think we have to make it a priority and move in that direction for sure. We're going to move on to uh, education has been mentioned, but I want to dig into this a little bit. Uh, Tina, this will be your question first. After two years of mostly distance learning during the pandemic, a study from Brookings shows reading and math scores have dropped for U.S. students and the gap is wider in higher poverty schools. What plan do you have for Oregon students to catch up academically? Yeah, I know that the statistics are showing that across the country, and that's not the kind of educational outcomes we want for our students. And let's face it, our children and young people have been through a very traumatic two years. And some folks are back in school in person and they're developmentally behind in terms of where they should be. So there are a lot of things we have to work on in our schools. When I look at those test scores, I think they're not a good indicator where anything is right now. So what do we do about it? Um, I was a big fan and champion of doing more summer learning, you know, making sure there are other opportunities outside the school year where students can get reacquainted with their peers, have different developmental opportunities, and 
you know, progress academically and make up. We need to make sure that we don't make any cuts in our schools right now, make sure we can lower classroom sizes. And frankly, we shouldn't spend a lot of extra hours doing the standardized testing, which doesn't mean a whole lot right now. We should be focusing on one-on-one instruction with our students to have what they need so they can stay on track to graduate. And I believe with the student success dollars that were implemented in 2019 that I helped pass, we will have those resources to do that. And Tobias, what steps would you take to help students catch up academically? Well, this is a really personal thing for me. We have a, a daughter who's in seventh grade. Uh, we have a son who is in third grade. And I have been frustrated about this through the pandemic. I've not been shy about uh, calling out my, my friends um, and, and asking for, for the urgency that I think we need in, in getting schools open on a much faster rate. But looking forward, I think we have to learn the lessons from the pandemic, make sure that uh, students have a, a fair start um, to, their, to their experience in, in schools. I think universal pre-K is important. I think real uh, investments in, in the evolving science of how students learn to read. Um, the predictive power of whether a student is on track in third grade is, is enormous. Um, and we do have a lot of opportunities to, um, to, to fill gaps, to allow people to uh, catch up on something they've struggled with or add enrichment opportunities over the summer gap. Finally, I think we can't overlook uh, the need for mental health capacity in schools for, for educators and for students alike. There's some interesting models about how to bring that capacity into schools and add to the, uh, the pipeline and that workforce that I think we ought to be looking closely at. Right. Let's talk about rural Oregon issues. The poorest counties in Oregon with the highest poverty rates are rural counties. They include Malheur, Wheeler, Klamath, and Lake. What plan do you have to address rural Oregon issues, which include everything from homelessness to extreme drought to not having their views adequately represented by lawmakers in Salem and to help Oregonians who live there thrive? Tobias, let's begin with you here. I was raised in Idaho, so I, I plan to take advantage of that background in talking to people. Uh, and I think it is a matter of showing up with some humility, not with the idea of saying, I'm here to, to impose a particular vision on a community. I want to hear what they perceive to be their opportunities and, and the barriers uh, to recognize that the state can play a role in removing barriers and offering uh, opportunities to states, uh, to, to individual communities in the state. There are, there are some things that will be useful all over the state, high-speed internet, for example. And then I think there are, there's great value in understanding the, the regional strengths that vary across the state. It might be precision agriculture somewhere or uh, mass timber somewhere else or offshore wind along the coast. Uh, all of those things, I think, can contribute to the idea that we have a stake in, in the wider success of the state that, that spans border to border. Tina, same question to you. Yeah, and this is a really important question. There's a lot in the question you asked. So I'm gonna take a, a, a part of it. Um, I, I do feel and believe that people feel left out. They, left out. they feel left out of the conversations in other parts of the state. Um, and let's not forget, we have um, some lower income communities right in the metro area. We have some very rural areas of Clackamas County, Washington County. So this idea that rural is everywhere somewhere outside of Portland, I don't think is true. So what I would say is, I think it's really important for the next governor and something that I will embrace 100% is to make sure we have everybody at the table so they feel heard. But that doesn't happen in Salem. You need to be in people's communities with them, listening, doing a lot of listening, because in most cases, local communities know how to solve their issues. They know what they're looking for. They know what they need. And as a state leader, being a partner to make sure they have whatever that's, you know, reducing red tape or getting a certain amount of, of seed money to kind of start a new project. 
those are the things that a state leader can do. As governor, I want to spend less time in Salem, more time around the state, working with individuals and leaders who know what they need and just need a little bit more of a helping hand from the state. I wanted to ask you a follow-up, Tina, because a lot of Republican representatives really didn't feel like you worked with them in the legislature. Um, would it be different if your governor, with you reaching out to Republican lawmakers and their constituents than it was when you were House Speaker? Well, certainly the legislature is a very partisan environment, but what I will say is as Speaker, I was the Speaker for the entire state. My job was to make sure all other 59 other members of the House were successful, making sure they had what they needed for their communities, whatever that was a project or a particular issue. Any, my door was always open for any member, Republican or Democrat. In fact, I went so far as to pair up House Republicans and House Democrats together to say, go visit each other's districts. Go learn what it means to live in a more rural community or in an urban community. In my case, my last visit was with Rep. Warner Risky in Klamath Falls, and he came to North Portland. That type of dialogue and understanding of where people live and what the situation is, is going to improve our public policy making. And as speaker, I was very committed to that. Every part of the state has to succeed. That's good for the whole state. And Tobias, just a brief follow-up for you too. Um, in your opening, you said something along the lines of what we are doing today isn't working. And I just wanna say some voters will say you're part of what we're doing today. So how would you briefly respond to that concern? Well, I haven't been setting the legislative agenda for the last uh, nine or 10 years. I've been managing the Treasury very successfully and managing our state's portfolio and delivering programs uh, to people who, who want to be in a better financial position. So we've done that in a way that uh, uh, has brought people together and, and increased uh, public support. So I think that's a model uh, for what is working working and uh, what we can take into the uh, into the governor's office, because I've got that record of listening to people and, and building those coalitions. We're, we're soon going to go to the lightning round, but I did really want to get this question in uh, about climate change. You know, I talked with a young climate activist on Straight Talk not long ago, Grant, Grant High School sophomore Ada Crandall, and she was out there with a lot of youth activists yesterday uh, protesting when President Biden was here trying to get his attention. She said she feels like she's been misled, sort of duped by the city of Portland when it comes to making a difference on climate change. She told me she was taught the little things would reduce her carbon footprint to recycle, to compost, to bike places. But she says it's not enough, not nearly enough. The city remains far from meeting its climate goals. What significant concrete move do you pledge to make as governor that young people like Ada, who say climate change is one of their biggest fears, it keeps them up at night, what that would really make a difference to them? And I'll begin with Tina. I am so impressed by our young people and their, and their commitment to keeping us, the adults, accountable and doing our part. Climate change is the biggest issue of their lives and the biggest issue of our own lives. We are feeling the impact now. And uh, I've been a climate champion. That's why I'm endorsed by the Oregon League of Conservation Voters, fighting for 100% clean electricity, making sure we can reduce um, you know, air pollution and water pollution. There are many things we can do, but who the next governor is will matter because right now, some of the things we're doing were done by executive order by the current governor. We need to have a governor who's not going to you know, go back on our word and go backwards. We need to progress. We need to do more. And it's going to take all of us. City of Portland can't do it by themselves. The whole state has to be committed to meeting our carbon reduction goals so we can do our part to make sure climate change does not get any worse. Can you give us like one significant move you'd make that might impress Ada? 
Well, I think uh, one of the jobs as the governor is to make sure that our agencies are following their climate action plans. And when it comes to the Department of Transportation, making sure that ODOT is using the new federal dollars in a way that actually reduces emissions, helps people get into different modes of transportation, particularly in the Portland metro area, transit, bicycle, and pedestrian. But it's not that is not enough. We have to do more in our transportation sector, get more people into zero emission vehicles. I also think we need to take on methane. As we all know from the recent UN report, while methane might not be as prevalent, its impact is substantial. And we have to reduce methane emissions in our state. And we have to hold our fossil fuel companies accountable to do that. And Tobias, what significant move would you make as governor to really make a difference when it comes to climate change? I think we have to live up to the goals that we've set in 2040. And I think there are three things in particular that, that can make the difference. Embracing offshore wind and getting a lot faster about how to implement that. Getting a lot faster in, in, in building out electrical electric vehicle charging infrastructure and building a, a secondary market for electric vehicles. And being a lot better about energy efficiency in buildings, uh, homes and, and offices alike. While we do that, we have to keep in mind that we can't leave vulnerable communities behind because these policies and these opportunities affect different populations differently. I'm going to call an audible here. We're going to get some questions from uh, our City Club members in a moment, but I want to drop one in here because it relates to what we're talking about. This is from Marsha. And one of the things that the youth activists, the youth climate activists have been calling for is stopping freeway expansion. So Marsha asks, can youth and future Oregonians count on you to veto any budget that includes funding for freeway expansion, Tobias? I think we need to make sure that we are including uh, audits of, of uh, uh, the effects of those, but I think it would be uh, it would be irresponsible to say that in every circumstance that that is required. A climate and environmental justice audit needs to be part of our, our uh, process, but there may be places where uh, an upgrade on a safety basis could be considered an expansion by some people, and I, I don't want to make a commitment that I can't keep. So that's a no. And Tina, can youth and future Oregonians count on you to veto a budget that would support uh, funding for freeway expansion? I do think, and I have supported in the past, making sure that our current highway infrastructure is safe and adequate. That does not mean an expansion. And I do think, you know, how you define expansion is critical here. I want to make sure that we have safe interchanges where people can move safely, um, because that's important. But I do not believe we need additional highway infrastructure. And so if that's the question, brand new expansion, brand new expansion, I would say no. I would not support. But on the on the Rose Quarter, you would support expanding the freeways there, and also on the I five bridge replacement. I think that's a twelve lane freeway. Well, we're still in the design. That. We're still in the design phase of the I five bridge. I believe we can have a much uh, more reasonable design there that meets the safety goals of having we need to replace a bridge, but doing it in a way that we facilitate different types of transportation is not as large as previous options have been. And in the Rose Quarter, um, it's about redesigning the interchanges to make it safer. I don't believe we need to make it substantially larger. Tobias, did you want to mention anything about the I-5 bridge replacement or the Rose Quarter expansion? Well, the former speaker and I worked uh, together in our previous effort when our friends in Washington did not uh, 
uh, join us. So I think we are aligned about the, the need for a replacement bridge there. Um, it is disappointing that we are uh, back farther into that process in a, in a project that is almost certainly to, almost certain to cost more uh, than the previous versions. Uh, so I think we're, I think we're well aligned there. It is largely about safety uh, and, and adequacy. And you're talking about the Columbia River crossing that died in 2014. Hey, candidates, take a breath. It's time now for the lightning round. Ah, in this section, we ask you to keep your responses to no more than one word or phrase, depending on the question. So I'll uh, begin with Tina Kotek. What do you do on your day off when you take a day off? Go to the movies. <laughs> uh, uh, Tobias. I am on the sidelines at the uh, Little League game or the Rec Soccer League for our kids. And Tobias, who is a leader you admire most? Hard to say most, but someone I really admire uh, in general, uh, Governor Roberts, and I'm, I'm happy to have her support in, uh, in this race. And Tina? Oh, I think locally one of the people I look up to is uh, the late Vera Katz. Her a time in the legislature being the first female speaker and just the way that she ran Portland you know, kept the city from flooding. I and mean, she was amazing. And I, I like her can-do attitude and her steeliness. Uh, it's something I admire. We appreciate your enthusiasm there. It was more than one sentence, though, which is <laughs> what we asked for here. But we're going to move on. One word or phrase. Uh, Tina, this is you first. What is one word to describe Oregon right now? One word right now? It is always beautiful. Tobias. Uh, strained. Tobias, the first thing you did when the mask mandate was lifted? Uh, wow. I, don't, I think probably just being uh, uh, inside and, and happy to be with some other people. I know that's not a word, but uh, what, not a single word, but hard to, hard to come up with one. <laughs> Tina? We hadn't been eating out a lot. I took my wife out for a nice Valentine's Day dinner. All right, Tina, give us one word or phrase to describe yourself. Persistent. And Tobias. Uh, collaborative. And Tobias, one word or phrase to describe your opponent, Tina. Driven. And Tina, how would you describe in one word or phrase, Tobias? Friendly. Tina, what's your vision as governor in one word? Opportunity. Tobias. Okay, if, it's, if we can have a phrase, I would say uh, shared ambition. Okay, two words, that's all right. And Tobias, what is the last book you read? Oh, the last book uh, was a, a fiction uh, book called uh, Great Circle. Uh, about a, a, a woman who was an aviator in the 50s, 30s, 40s, 50s. Tina, last book? I have a lot of books half read, but the one I actually finished most recently was Being Mortal by Atoka One Day. Good book. And your favorite restaurant in Oregon, Tina? Oh, there's too many. I'm going to name my favorite in North Portland, which would be uh, Swift and Union. And Tobias? Burmese. All right, some interesting answers from both of you there. Now let's get to move on to an opportunity for each of you to ask your opponent a question of your own choosing. Tina, you are going to go first here. Tobias, you're going to have 60 seconds to respond to her question. So Tina, please go ahead with your question. 
Well, Treasury Reed, there's been a lot of controversy about um, fossil fuel investments in our public pension system. I think the story that just came out from OPB said we have $5.3 billion in fossil fuel investment, but that's not even including our private equity investments. What I want to know is why you have been so resistant to helping people understand what that number is and how to take someone outside your office to give us that number. And why aren't we seeing an aggregate number of what's in private equity? I know you might not be able to do it individually, but why can't you aggregate all the fossil fuel investments in our private equity and let people know what it is? I'm glad we get to talk about this because um, you know, while you were speaker, we did never have this conversation. I didn't hear those kinds of inquiries uh, about our, our pension system and the way that we invest those dollars. And it really matters because people rely on our ability to generate returns to pay for their groceries and their rent. I'm really proud of what we have done in our portfolio and what we are doing. We've dramatically decreased the investments that we have that have fossil fuel risk. We've more than doubled our investments in clean energy and renewable technology. And we've added to the capacity to include those risks in our decision-making. We've also used our, strat our status as an investor to push companies away from fossil fuels and reduce their emissions. There are directors on the board at Exxon as a result of our votes. So I like where we are headed. We always wanna have those conversations with people um, that help them understand our, our, uh, our trajectory and our direction. And I think people should feel really good about that. And Tobias, it's your turn now to ask Tina a question. And Tina, you'll have 60 seconds to respond. Thanks. Well, we talked about this to some degree already, but I think um, you know it's clear that a lot of Oregonians are not feeling good about where the the state is is headed right now. And yet, you we talked about it. You you felt like uh, I heard you say in a, in a previous conversation we had that you didn't feel like it was the time for uh, disruption, and so um, you would be asking for a, a letter from agency directors rather than asking for their their resignation. So after we've seen all these failures, whether it's uh, the unemployment benefit system or rental relief or um, the paid family leave program. I, I hope I'd like to know if you could help us understand a little more about how that um, the letter as opposed to to a resignation would would help hold agency directors accountable and help us to deliver on the promises we've made to Oregonians. Right. Well, I appreciate that question a lot. I think it's about management style. Um, I think myself and other people who are running for governor think we need to bully people out of state government and just blow up the whole system. State government has to function every day to make sure people have services. So when we talk about change and we talk about making sure people can get the services done in state government, as governor, my job is to make sure the leadership of agencies and the next level of leadership has clear direction, knows what needs to be accomplished and has my full support. If look, if there are agency directors who are not on board with that, they will not have a job. We have to solve the problems that are happening in our agencies. And by not having disruption, I think that was a misquote in that particular story. Disruption doesn't solve problems. It might make you feel good in the moment, but what we have to do is actually solve problems. And so I wanna be careful about how we make the change with our agencies because the goal is to get the work done. All right, thanks to you both for that. Let us move now to questions for the candidates from City Club members. Now, Laurel and I reviewed and selected these from among those that were submitted. Some may be slightly edited for brevity and clarity, but thanks to members for submitting these. Candidates, a reminder in this section, you're asked to keep your responses to 60 seconds or less. And we begin with a question from Darlene, who asks, what will you do to build a sense of community that includes all Oregonians? And Tobias, you'll go first here. 
and show up. I think um, the governor needs to be uh, taking state government on the road. I, I was raised in Idaho, and I remember clearly uh, Governor Andrus in those days uh, would take uh, key agency directors to, to rural communities around the state and, and build those connections with communities. I think that's a, a great way to, uh, to start. And Tina Kotek. I'm committed to the time and effort to make sure that people feel included in the conversations. And it does include our, our rural neighbors on, in distant parts of the state from Portland, but it also involves our black, indigenous and people of color communities who do feel left out in conversations about who gets appointed to boards of commissions. Do we have the, do we reflect the Oregon population in who runs our agencies? Who's serving on boards and commissions? Do we have authentic conversations with our nine federally recognized tribes. I believe in inclusive conversations with all Oregonians, and that's what I've been doing as speaker and will do as governor. Moving on here, a two-parter here. Anne asks, what specifically will you do to reduce gun violence in our state? And Susan adds, do you support new laws or ballot measures that are intended to restrict access to assault weapons and require a permit to obtain a firearm? Tina, let's start with you. Well, um, I'm the only candidate in the race that's endorsed by Giffords Pact, uh, Gabby Giffords organization that works on all of these issues, because I have a track record of getting things done around background checks and safe storage, and we can do more. There's literally too many guns out there. And for the folks who own, legally own a firearm and are good actors and do what they're supposed to do, it's not about that. It's about making sure that people who shouldn't have guns don't have guns. And that means enforcing our laws making sure we ban ghost guns so there aren't other unregistered guns out there, um, and really working with our law enforcement to do the smart things with communities to break the cycle of violence. Tobias? I'm supportive of the uh, ban of ghost guns, of uh, high capacity magazines, a statewide buyback, uh, closing the loophole on, on background checks, uh, and smart investments in, in law enforcement. And I think those, uh, uh, those ballot measures that have been proposed to have uh, have a lot of merit. And Paul asks, what will you do to address trash and clean up throughout Portland and beyond? And we'll add to that, can you give us one unique idea to get that job done, Tobias? I'd, I'd require ODOT to to take those steps affirmatively on the uh, on the pieces of land where where that authority exists, and I'd call together local government and and hold them accountable. Uh, it's time to stop making excuses and pointing fingers at each other. Tina, well, I've already when I've been asked as speaker, uh, I stepped up. You know, when the mayor's office asked for two million dollars for ODOT to clean up trash and graffiti on our highways. I gave them that money. We have to make sure we're followed through on and make sure any public lands are kept up, that there's no trash. Um, an innovative idea. I think the idea of, of uh, having the types of dumpsters in uh, specific locations where people can go and take responsibility for their own homes at this point, living in a tent to get their trash off the street. I think we have to make it easier for people to do what they wanna do, which is keep their the place where they're living cleaner. All right, you have both held elected office, state office for the last 15 years or so, give or take, and have run many campaigns, including this one. Debbie asks, what are your thoughts on campaign finance reform? As moderators, Laurel and I will add here, if you support reform, where should those limits be set? Tina. I do support campaign finance limits. That's why as speaker, I made sure we passed campaign finance limits in the Oregon House. The Oregon Senate couldn't get it done. I made sure we passed two voters, a constitutional change that will allow us to have 
clearly constitutionally campaign finance limits. I think it should be the legislature setting it because the, the way that those conversations can be inclusive and involve lots of different folks to make sure we get it right. That's, I think, probably the best way to make the public policy. I supported limits that are similar to what the federal government has. We need to have those. We're gonna have the most expensive governor's race in our history because people are getting $1 million contribution checks every day, it seems. Um, so we do need campaign finance limits and I would support that. And where would you set that limit? Well, again, I think you know we have to look at the details, but my recollection was the last legislation that I supported, they were close to what the federal limits are uh, for individuals um, to make it clearer. Um, so there was more uh, alignment with what the federal limits are. All right, Tobias, same question to you. I'd also support limits, and I think the uh, federal limits are as good a place to start as any, but I also don't want people to feel like uh, limitations are the panacea. I worked in a, in a legislative campaign uh, in 1996 when there were limits, and what we saw was, was not a change in the, the content particularly, we just saw a change in who was communicating. So I think it's important uh, to, to accompany limits with transparency measures that will allow voters to see who is, is paying for, for communications as well. And, and it has to be followed through. Just, uh, you know, we, we, we have gotten the, uh, the constitutional change, uh, but, but not getting it through the legislature uh, means we don't have those limits in place. And it sounds like it'll come up again as far as what I've heard from Dan Rayfield in the next legislative session. This one from Christopher and Dorothy. Would you favor or oppose Oregon's use of a citizen's independent redistricting commission for that task instead of having the legislature perform it? And a second part to that, do you think legislators have any conflict of interest in that task? Why or why not? Tobias. I served on the redistricting committee in, in 2011 uh, when we were able to uh, to do it uh, with with what seems in in long retrospect uh, with a, with a good deal of uh, of consensus. But it's not easy, and I'm certainly open to the idea of us uh, of an independent commission. Um, but you know, there's there's there are always going to be people with interests and and backgrounds and so on. So I think it's. Uh, like the answer to the question about uh, contribution limits, it's not a panacea. It is important, though, to, to, make, uh, to make it possible for people to feel heard. And Tina Kotek. Well, I want to thank the Portland City Club for their work on coming up with a proposal about an independent commission. I think we want to get the details right, but there, there would be politics and an independent commission. They would look different than politics if legislators do the redistricting maps. Um, as speaker, I tried to make sure we had a fair and open process um, to get to maps uh, that were upheld by the courts. And we're lucky here in this state that we actually have some very strict guidelines about making sure communities of interest are held together, that there is fairness in the maps that are drawn. That's not the case in other states in our country, and it's, it's really rather distressing. Um, so I'd be open to it, but I, I would want to you know, have a further conversation about the details. Uh, maybe that's what we'll be doing a decade from now. You never know. And Tina Kotek, we'll start with you on this one. Michael asks, how prepared is Oregon for the next recession? Well, one of the things that I'm proud of and someone who's done budget work even before I was elected is that we have uh, reserves that we didn't have in the past. During the Great Recession, we had to make a lot of budget cuts. Uh, we have a stable education stability fund, a rainy day fund. We have uh, kept back money every biennium, every two-year budget cycle to make sure we can put money into those reserve accounts. Um, our bond rating is better than it's ever been because of the uh, the things we've done around our reserve funds. So we're never totally prepared, 
But I think from a budgetary perspective, uh, we are in a good spot uh, if we have to weather a recession that really affects our income tax income, which is the biggest problem that we face here in Oregon. And Treasure Reed, I bet you have an answer to that one. I do have some thoughts. I, th I appreciate the, the former speaker rec uh, recognizing the credit rating that we have. Um, that is in part uh, due to the uh, uh, to the legislature's uh, decisions around the uh, reserve funds, and I commend that. Uh, in fact, I was part of the uh, the group that helped create the rainy, rainy day fund when I was in the legislature. Uh, but it's also a credit to the folks at Treasury who manage those uh, those debt issuances uh, really well and are always looking for ways to uh, to save money. Uh, I think that commitment has to be uh, consistent. It's really Really hard to say I'm not going to spend money on something that is merited, attractive, has a good return uh, for the, the interest of a, of a future recession. The thing about recessions is we don't know when they're coming. We don't know how big they're going to be. All we know is that every day we are closer to the next one. So it takes real uh, real commitment uh, to be prepared for that. And that's something that I'm absolutely committed to as treasurer and, and would be uh, continue to be committed to as governor. All right, and a final question here, and this one made me laugh because yes, we all struggle to get to the bottom of our inboxes sometimes. So this is from Ruth Ann who asks, in your current position or most immediate past public position, how did you reply to emails or did you respond? And we're gonna add to that question here for clarification, emails from constituents, Tobias. Yeah, I, I do respond to emails and I look carefully at what people are, are asking about. Um, I, I you know take the time to, to get help when there are uh, questions that I don't know the immediate answer to, but I think it's important for people to, to know that their emails are read. Uh, I spend a lot of time uh, writing handwritten thank you notes uh, as, as well. Um, I, think that's, I think that's important and a good way to, to learn and to build relationships. Dina? Well, constituent communication was always a priority um, when I served in the legislature. And I didn't answer them all personally because we would get a lot of template emails. But often my staff would say, hey, you need to respond to this one specifically, and I would. But here's, here's a better story. Now that I'm a private citizen running for office, I get all kinds of emails. And I had one the other day where someone was clearly not agreeing with me at the get-go. I responded. We had a nice back and forth about issues we both cared about. And I got an invite to um, go have a beer in Estacada. So I'm looking forward to that. I, a lot of times the emails we get, I think people just want to be heard and they want you to answer. So um, that, that's a good, a good story. Uh, thank you, candidates, Tina Kotek and Tobias Reed. It's now time for our closing statements. Treasurer Reed, you went first in the opening statements per our coin toss. So we'll also hear from you first in the closing statements. You have two minutes. Well, thanks again uh, to Dan and, and Laurel, the City Club, for, for getting us uh, uh, this opportunity. I think it is a, a really important choice that Oregonians are facing over the next uh, 25 days. And I'm here to, to tell you I'm not satisfied with where we are as a state. I think we have a lot more untapped potential that we need to realize by matching our good intentions with good execution. The governor is not the 91st legislator. The governor is someone who is going to uh, deliver results if, if he or she is successful. And I think that's what I'm aimed at doing. I look back at a lot of experiences uh, as treasurer, and I, the one, one that I'm particularly proud of is the way that we navigated the seemingly intractable problem of the Elliott State Forest that's on track to be the Elliott State Research Forest by bringing people together uh, to, to embrace a common vision. We brought together environmentalists, uh, timber interests, and this is a model for how we can do things going forward on all other kinds of big issues. So I wanna point to that 
And I want to point to the fact that the two people who have done this job as governor and have chosen to be involved in the race have endorsed me. I think that's significant. I think it's something voters should keep in mind, and I hope they will vote for me. Thanks very much. And thank you, Treasurer Reed, former Speaker Kotek. Your closing statement now. You have two minutes. Well, thank you. And again, thank you to the City Club for this great discussion today. It's really important for people to be engaged in this kind of debate. So please vote. The primary is on May 17th. I'm asking Oregonians to hire me to be your CEO. I'm asking for your vote. Here's what Oregonians tell me they don't want in their next governor. Someone who just uses poll-tested talking points about what's wrong in Oregon. Or looking to the general election, someone whose career has mostly been about saying no to things instead of finding solutions. Leadership is not saying no, we can't do that. It's getting people to yes. Helping people come together and make solutions happen. Leadership is getting those solutions across the finish line. That's what I've done in my career as an advocate, as a state representative, and a speaker of the Oregon House. What I hear from Oregonians around the state is that they want things to be better. They want things to work. They want a leader who is ready to actually solve problems. They want someone who will take action, who will face our problems head on, truthfully and fairly. You can do some of that in the legislature, and I've had a lot of success doing that there. But where you can really make sure that those changes are delivered is in the governor's office. And that's why I'm running to be governor. If you hire me as your governor, I'm the type of person who will sweat the details, look under the hood and make things work. I'm a really direct person. I'm not gonna play games or make promises that I can't deliver on. And my door will always be open to make sure your voices are heard loud and clear. Listen, the challenges ahead of us are real. They are serious and they are tough. Being able to deliver results is what really matters. I will be fearless for Oregonians. I will work hard for you. I will fight for Oregonians as we tackle the challenges that are ahead of us. I would be honored to have your vote and your support. Thank you. And thank you to the candidates, Treasurer Tobias Reed and former House Speaker Tina Kotek. And that brings the City Club of Portland KGW Democratic debate for the Oregon governor's race to a close. Our thanks to the candidates and to the City Club for providing Oregonians a front row seat. Which means it is now up to all of you watching. A reminder, though, Oregon has a closed primary system. So if you want to vote for a particular party, the deadline to register is next Tuesday. Election day is Tuesday, May 17th. Do not forget to cast your ballots ahead of that postmark deadline that evening. And a reminder, we'll be back before then with the City Club KGW Republican debate in the Oregon governor's race. That'll be Tuesday, May 3rd at noon. And if you missed parts of today's debate, we're going to bring you highlights both on air and online starting this evening. That's on KGW and KGW.com. Thank you for joining us. I'm David Molko. And I'm Laurel Porter. On behalf of KGW and the City Club of Portland. <laughs>